Thank you for joining another wonderful episode of Success Innovation. Today's episode is called La CEO de Shift. In this episode, we have the privilege of listening to Raquel Tamis, the CEO of Shift at the national level. We dive deep into her early beginnings and how she has been able to overcome so many obstacles, both personal and professional. We discover that one of her major role models is someone she knows since a little girl, but we also discover that she has a powerful role model whom she did not necessarily know as such. Welcome, Raquel Tames. Let's get started. Welcome back to another wonderful episode of Success Innovation. Today, I have the honor and the privilege of bringing you and having a wonderful individual. Her name is Raquel Tames. Raquel Tames is the CEO of SHIP at the national level, a true advocate for Latinos advancing and prospering in the United States. She is an attorney at heart who has served tenaciously in various capacities in corporations dealing with OSHA and MSHA. She has been a forefront runner supporting with broad spectrums of labor and employment law issues. She resides in Washington, D.C., and for the past three and a half years has led SHIP one of the largest Latino-focused organizations in the United States, as the CEO. Welcome, Raquel Tames, to Success Innovation. How are you today? I'm doing great, and thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm really excited to be here. I, I uh, follow you on your social media, and in particular LinkedIn, and I've seen the interviews that you've done of really amazing individuals. Several of them are shipped members and ship leaders and i was like well i want to be a part of that so i'm super glad to be here thank you for thinking of me and inviting me oh well you know you and i you and i were talking earlier and honestly you are a true leader and the organization of ship has expanded and you know, embraced a lot more uh, diversity in the last couple of years with your leadership. And I thank you for that. I thank you for being a guest in the podcast of Success Innovation. With that being said, you know, the questions that I normally ask are, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your early stages? What was your childhood like? I know that you've posted that you're a daughter of immigrants, but where were you born? How, how was your childhood growing up? Sure. Um, I am the proud daughter of immigrants. Uh, I'm the youngest of six. I was born in Houston, Texas, so I'm a Tejana. My parents are from Mexico. Um, they immigrated almost 60 years ago. They still uh, live in the house that they built when they immigrated from Mexico. It is in the hood in Houston, um, but it's the only home that I know. It's, uh, it's home base. Uh, my dad was a migrant farm worker and uh, we, you know, I come from very humble beginnings. Um, my parents made lots of sacrifices, um, certainly made sacrifices to get me uh, to really good schools because unfortunately the schools in, in my neighborhood were not that good. So parents found ways to send me to, you know, private Catholic schools. I got a good education and, um, you know, learning has always been very important to me. It wasn't necessarily something that my parents prompted or required. Um, it was just something innate. But at the, at the same time, you know, if your parents made the sacrifice and they advocated you going to the better schools, that 
in itself instill the the need or the the requirement from them to you even though they didn't say it to continue and to go and pursue an education so i think without words they were you know showing you the path that you needed to follow so i think that's kind of a absolutely um a, a big part of that was they didn't want me to get into trouble um either so um there's a, a lot of temptations um in our neighborhood and and, and in the schools um, but no i am very grateful to the sacrifices that my parents made and what was interesting is is that um, because I, I did get an elementary school for example i I got bus to River Oaks Elementary. That is the wealthiest neighborhood in all of Houston. So going from one of the poorest neighborhoods to one of the wealthiest neighborhoods on a bus for an hour every, you know, twice a day. Um, but I was sent there because I was part of the Vanguard program. And that's, you know, a program for, you know, I guess highly talented students, gifted students of, gifted of that students. of that era. I think at that like gate for for students at this point. That's right. Gifted That's and talented, right. right. Um, so but, you know, you know, but going, I would going, just add real quick that um, going to that school and then the private Catholic schools that I went to for junior high and high school, it, everyone around me always had more. And their parents were younger, their parents had a mastery of their English language, they always had the latest model for, you know, cars, and my friends wore designer clothes, and um, I didn't have access to all and, that. And that's where I was getting at next, you know, you're going from this poor neighborhood, or barrio, as we, we call it, you know, the yeah. neighborhood, the hood, um, and you're going, you're, you're traveling about an hour in bus, so that in itself is a struggle. Whereas yeah. the other kids are probably being dropped off within 15 minutes from their home. So you're going in from a low income area, bust into the rich or wealthiest, wealthier area, and you see this different gradient starting to take shape. So you're going into this area and you're like the poor little Chicana Latina and people are kind of looking at you. Oh my God, you're still wearing clothes secondhand from like the swap meet or whatever. I don't know what or that my mother made me. Exactly. So how did, how did that make you feel? Because at a young age, and, I, and if I recall right, you know, you feel a little bit hindered and you feel like, oh, my God. And as a kid, you don't understand. You only focus on the moment at present. As we're older looking back, you're like, well, you know, that was a little bit uh, childish, but, you know, that was my reality at that point. How did you cope with it as a child during that time? You know, that's a it's an interesting question. And, and I and I have thought about that. And there was a lot of. Um, diverse kids, okay. really smart, diverse kids that were bused into that elementary school. Um, and we were friends on the bus and we were friends in our classrooms and, and we sort of um, had our own circle of friends. But we certainly, I think at that age, um, you know, we were, we were inclusive, right? Of even the, the students that were there that were from the neighborhood and, and very well off. And I had friends that had elevators in their house. Um, I had chickens in my backyard. So very different, um, but I applied myself. I, I love to learn and I love to impress my teachers and the students around me. And I studied, studied. I, 
I, I won't say that I have a photographic memory, but I have a really good memory. So studying and doing well in school and because I loved it um, made it easy. And then the teachers were, were excellent and they were really invested in their students and invested in me. And that made all the difference in the world. But um, early on and, and certainly in junior high and high school, because the disparities were more poignant and they were more evident. Um, I, I, I knew more and I could see the differences, but that only prompted me to do more and to do better and to study longer and to apply myself more um, because the thinking was, okay, well, I don't have you know, that big house in that really nice neighborhood um, or really young parents um, with great jobs, but I'm just as good as these other students. And I'm going to go back now to, to your home base. Um, mm -hmm. At home, you know, in school, everything's in English, but you're bicultural because at home, I'm assuming your parents spoke more, more Spanish than English. Yes. This is an yes. assumption. Okay, yes. So at home, the communication between you and your parents and your siblings must have been more in Spanish, correct? Yes. Um, well, as the youngest of six, yes. um, my older brothers and sisters um, were also educated in, 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 in Houston schools, in Texas, um, so in English. So with my brothers and sisters, uh, we communicated primarily in English with one another. With my parents, it was in Spanish, although my dad, proficient in both languages, both in English and Spanish. My dad is one of the smartest, wisest people that I know. Um, depending on the topic that my father and I were having, um, if it was something really more complex, like politics or um, the economy, we, we, would, we would speak in English. What's and the most poignant topic that you remember vividly where he treated you more as an adult and you said that and you you can recall and recollect that transition of you be, being a child into being a young woman you know what comes to mind is i actually used a curse word and all my father said was you disappointed me and that rocked my world i would rather have my father have slapped me in the face um, or spanked me or whatever but him saying that he was disappointed in me broke my heart and i still remember where i was in the part of the house what i was wearing what part of day it was who was in the room when he said it? It was that powerful because my father, um, with, with all the good, the bad, the ugly, the disastrous, his flaws, um, he is, I could not ask for a better father. He's always indulged my curiosity. He's always made me feel invincible. Who I am today as a woman and how I navigate this world, um, my success, I owe to my father. And so when he, there was a, a paradigm shift 
when it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to, you know, you know, spank you when you were like a little girl, although I only recall him spanking me once. Um, and my brothers and sisters would say, well, that's why your dad's favorite and you're spoiled. But I am not spoiled. Um, <laughs> but I am my dad's favorite. But when he said he was disappointed in me, that it just like I said, it broke my heart. It, it, it rocked my world. And I was like, I, I am never going to say or do anything um, intentionally to disappoint my father. Okay. Okay. And then we go into high school and you're obviously going into, you know, that mindset of, I want to make my parents and more your father proud. And you're at the level of deciding which college to attend. You have older siblings. So I don't know if they went to a university. They did not. Okay. So you're one, you're one of the first ones in your family of six children to actually attend the university. How does this young Latina choose a university having that weight of six or five siblings not attending university, being a poor neighborhood girl, and having a mom and a dad who are immigrants in, in this country? How do you manage to decide, I want to pursue higher education? And how did you come about law if you didn't have any real role models within your immediate family that were at that level? You know, it, it's a series of factors um, and considerations. So early on, and I'm gonna get really vulnerable here, uh, I had my Me Too moment when I was in the fifth grade. Yeah. Um, and as the youngest of six, and, and I think I was just an old soul, right? I was very observant. I was very curious. My dad always indulged my, my, my questions and my curiosities. But I observed my mother and my sisters and you know, my they went from my father's house to their to their husband's house, and they didn't go off to school, with the exception of my oldest sister. She did go to university with her husband when they were married, and they had a child, my my oldest niece. So, and they've been very successful. All my brothers and sisters have been successful. Um, they didn't necessarily go off to university, but they've been successful in their own right. Um, but you know, my, my Me Too moment in the fifth grade, um, seeing my sisters, um, you know, go from my father's house to their husband's house and not going off to school and kind of living on their own and doing their own thing. Um, and, and really growing up too, um, as, a, as, a, as a little girl and as a young woman, still living at home, observing my mother, I didn't quite understand sort of the dynamic um, I always felt like my mom was subservient and less than. Hmm. Um, and I never wanted to be like my mother. And I aligned myself with my father and the power structure in the house. It was a very traditional Roman Catholic patriarchal structure. Mm -hmm. um, and for the longest time, uh, I didn't understand my mother um, and I didn't gravitate towards her. And it wasn't until I was about to graduate from law school that I realized 
that my mom is really smart and very diplomatic and strategic and has a different type of power than what was very obvious, the power that my father exerted in the house. And so my first year of law school, when I came back for the holidays, I actually told my mom, I said, you know, mom, I never wanted to be like you. And it kind of shocked her. And I said, but I realize now that I need to be more like you because my mom navigates the world in a very different way than my father. And I emulated my father. And so I think it's a balance of that feminine and masculine energy that I'm still trying uh, to, to figure out. But when you, when you consider those factors, my Me Too moment, um, uh, you know, sort of the dynamics in the house, uh, the fact that I was being bused to really wealthy schools and, and me trying to compete with that. Um, and then my parents telling me, well, you know, we don't have money to send you to school. So then I took it upon myself because early on, I made a decision that I did not want to be like my mother and I did not want to be like my sisters, that I wanted to be able to take care of myself. Mm -hmm. And that the only way I was going to be able to do that was to make my own way. And the way to make my own way was through education and, you know, getting a career and being able to take care of myself and pay for my own things. And if I wanted to be in a relationship, it was because I wanted to be in a relationship and not because I had to be in a relationship dependent on someone. I really shunned that, I, the idea of that very, very early on. And so when my parents said, hey, there's no money, I said, okay, well, I'll figure it out. And I did, I got full ride scholarships to multiple universities. Um, and, but it was also, um, the, the universities that I applied for were all in Texas, mainly because even though my parents said, and it was, it was really my mother, you know, she goes, well, I mean, we don't have money. Um, and then when I got, I said, well, I'll figure it out. She said, well, you can go to community college and you can live at home huh. and said, I wanted to go to Ivy league. And the thing is, I didn't even know what Ivy league was. All I knew that it was really good schools with great education. And I wanted to go off to Yale and Harvard because, hey, those were really good schools, universities. And so the compromise with my parents was, okay, I'll find a way to pay and I won't leave Texas, but I'm leaving Houston. And that was, I found that within myself to push back and basically, and sort of lay down the gauntlet and tell my parents that that's how it was going to be. And so I got full ride, uh, full ride scholarships to the University of Texas and Texas A&M, the University of Houston. Um, I ended up going to the University of Texas just because that's more my style versus where my very best friend went to Texas A&M. Uh -huh. So it was a great choice for me. And 
I was lucky to get that education. I was fortunate to have my, um, my undergrad paid for. So now you're going into a university and you're setting foot for the very first time in your university and you're the big, the big woman on campus now. And then Not really. I mean, you know, I mean, <laughs> University of Texas. <laughs> but you're, you're proud of yourself because you've made it, right? So you feel this, this you feel overwhelmed at the same time. So I want to know what was going through your mind the very first day that you sat foot or that you actually sat down in that first class at the University of Texas. What was going on? Well, it was overwhelming because, um, you know, I went to a really small high school. There was 300 total in our high school. There was less than 100 in my class. Um, it was St. Pius the 10th High School, and it was I got a great education there, and I'm still very close friends with everyone in my class. Right. Um, but, you know, my classes were small. My first class at the University of Texas had 500 people, <laughs> and I was identified by my social security number. So, um, and I'm living in a dorm room with one of my high school best friends. Um, Let me interject right okay, there. By the way, you know, by, by the way, a lot, a lot of the student IDs back before mid-90s and before, at least for me, it was the same way, uh, we were identified by our social security number yeah, and exactly. was our IDs and ID number. So then I think a law came about that said, no, 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 no. You, got, you guys have to actually yeah. assign numbers. Like here's, here's all your personal identification. You exactly, know? right, right. Um, so you're, so going to, you're going to the first class and, you know, what's the most difficult subject that you actually remember and how, because going, I've, you know, going from high school, it's one thing to a four year university. It's a totally different thing. So sure. which class was the one that shook your world and you said, Oh my God, this is real now. And how do I handle it? Well, it was actually two classes. Okay. And so we said, Hey, you know, when you walked onto the campus and you know, you're a big fish, I was like, no, I was a big fish in high school. <laughs> I was a very little fish in a big raging ocean at the University of Texas. Um, but I think the two courses, uh, statistics, I, I just didn't like. Economics, I liked, but logistically, it just didn't work for me because it was a super early class, like eight o'clock on a Friday. I was living off campus that semester um, and a TA was teaching it and there was a language barrier, and I just didn't like it because of the logistics of it. But statistics, I think it was just, I didn't like the subject, although now it's so very important. But I kind of sailed through university. Um, you know, studying and, and classwork is pretty easy for me, um, just like it was um, in high school. It was a little more challenging in law school, um, but if I had to go back, I think I would just pay closer attention and show up for class more consistently. Okay. I, did, I still did very well, um, and it was it was good that I was part of a business fraternity called Alpha Kappa Psi, okay. and I was also part of Inroads. So yeah. summers. I'd go back to Houston and my internship was with Conoco, 
um, ConocoPhillips at the time, and so I worked with them during the week, and then with Inroads Programming, would spend my Saturdays with them. So I really um, believe that that contributed to my success as well, and it certainly, you know, the money certainly helped too um, for my internship. So internships are invaluable. Okay, so now we're in 2020, and people think or say that there's, you know, the the inequality has lessened to a certain degree. Um, there's still a lot of headway to go, a lot of road to travel, but I want you to go back to your early uh, beginnings in college and reflect back on the gender disparity because you're a young Latina going into a big university and I want you to tell us what it was like for you to go into that university as far as the male-female ratio and how did that make you feel? I know you mentioned that you were in a sorority and that you joined inroads and that you had some additional support, which is great, which is what young professionals and young students going into those really should pursue because you cannot do it alone at a big university. But I want you to tell us about that observation reflecting back now that, that you have the opportunity. You know, disparities um i didn't really notice that if you're talking about gender disparities perhaps that's true and and it, and it, it is true because i see the numbers and the statistics and i talk to my ship members about it that perhaps it's more prevalent in engineering but not so much in business right in the business school um and so I, I I didn't see that as much, and and I and I I didn't pledge a sorority, right? I, I wasn't going to pledge a sorority. Um, when I did consider it, it was going to be the AKAs, which is what Kamala Harris is, um, our vice presidential candidate. It would would have been that sorority, but it was a fraternity, right? So it was a business fraternity, and it was both men and women. We 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 refer each other. Um, as brothers, but it was the IOTA chapter of Alpha Kappa Psi. It was a business fraternity, and it was it was good because we had study hours and things like that. Um, so I, I didn't really experience those or see those disparities personally. And then I was very active. I mean, I was on the powerlifting team at the University of Texas. Right. I walked onto the team, one first in regionals, one second in nationals. So men, women, um, and, and I was very active in other ways. I will tell you, though, that I did have a, an identity crisis okay. at, yeah. um, at UT because I, I got there and you know, my parents are from Mexico and I've always referred to myself as Mexican, Mexican-American. Um, but when I got to the University of Texas, um, I had people telling me, oh, you're a Chicana. And I've never referred to myself as a Chicana. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just I did, we didn't use that term growing up. And in fact, my parents didn't understand sort of brown power and what was going on and in, in sort of politically in that way. And they, they, and so we didn't use that term. And then we didn't use the term Tejana either, because that's a certain, almost kind of like a, a certain culture within the Hispanic um, community. 
and the word Hispanic wasn't used um, as much back then because it was something fairly new. I hadn't even heard of it when I got on the scene at University of Texas. Um, and I actually, I, I, I found it repelling because it was my understanding that it's a government term. It's a made up term. It's a census bureau term because they needed to figure out how to lump us all together and count us. Yeah. And, and then, so I had people saying, Hey, you know, you're Chicana, you're Tejana, you're Hispanic. Um, I referred myself to Mexican, Mexican American. I had to, and then, and, and then there were the, the haves and the have nots within just our community. There were the, the, the folks, the students from Mexico, the Mexican nationals, usually very well off, who didn't associate with other necessarily readily associate, associate with other Hispanics. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, because my parents were from Mexico and we had property in Mexico and I spoke fluent Spanish. Um, and there was also shadism too <laughs> within, you know, what that was happening at the University of Texas too. So there's a lot of these dynamics going on. I finally had to take a Chicano politics class to understand it all and, and to really get to the history of where is all this terminology coming from? What does it mean? Um, and it was, it was a reckoning for me because I had all these people trying to tell me and trying to slap labels on me and I had to come to an understanding for myself. So um, you, you finally figured out, you know, passed through that identity crisis and regardless of what label you are slapped on, you know who you are and you know, you, for myself at least, you know that people call me different labels and one of the one of the latest ones is latinx i'm like you know my wife and i were talking about this the other day and we're like latinx that's not something that that we were yeah you know we grew up with so i'm like well you know we're i'm myself i'm mexican-american uh mm -hmm. well just because i live in the united states but i was born in mexico and i came here when i was 10 so it's a it's a little bit of a different story but I could, I could never identify with Chicano. I could never really right. identify, right? So it's, it's kind of like what you're saying. Um, but you finally maneuvered through and how, how would you, you know, I, I always tell young students, you know, find a organization that makes uh, sense to you, makes sense to you that you feel that sense of, uh, unity that makes you feel well and welcome. I myself joined Mecha, and Mecha, for those who don't know, it's a little bit of a political organization that has a lot of Latinos, a lot of Hispanics, a lot of Mexican Americas, uh, Americans, but it's more of a political scene for them. And honestly, uh, you know, I was I, I was there for a little bit, but I didn't feel comfortable because they were a little bit too much, too too much for me, honestly. <laughs> so I, I mean, <laughs> like I mean, not 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 that they're wrong, but it's just that they they I've, my values, my core values, and what I'm getting at is look inside of you to your core values because those are your guiding compass. And as uh, Obama put it well, 
he said, you know, look within yourself for your guiding compass, which is your core values. That is what you are. That is the essence of who you are. I found SHIP, the Society of Hispanic Professional Engineers. And you are the leader, the CEO, the chief executive officer of this large United States Latino organization. How did you find out about SHIP? When you were a lawyer, you're in law, and you're doing a whole bunch of stuff. But now, th about three and a half years ago, how did you decide to join the head of SHIP? How was that road for you? Well, um, thanks for asking that. When the organization um, started to recruit, for the position of CEO, they retained a recruiting firm, a search firm, an executive search firm, and that search firm contacted me. And admittedly, I didn't know anything about SHIP. I had never heard of SHIP. I was like, SHIP who? SHIP what? Do they build ships? I don't, is it I don't a know. Boat? What, what is it? What is it? <laughs> Do they build boats? I don't, I don't understand. Um, and then when I started doing all this research and, and calling people and talking to people, I was just like, wow, how did I not know about this organization? I thought I was a Latina leader in the know. Um, and I was like, this is an amazing organization. And wow, I wish I was a part of something like this at the university. Um, I was a part of a lot of different groups, you know, Inroads and that crew and Chicano Society and that group and Alpha Kappa Psi, an entirely different type of group. I sort of compartmentalized my experience um, at the university. Um, but what I really loved about SHIP was it was about support for, you know, university students and professionals through mentorship and scholarship and role models and technical leadership and professional development. And I, I had to look back and I did in fact look back at my life and I said, that is what helped me become successful and, and where I'm at and to help me kind of up and you know up and down the peaks and valleys of my life and my education and my career i said if i could do that um you know full circle and give back to an organization if i could bring together all of my skills and credentials and experience and expertise and bring value to an organization that has this mission i'm absolutely going to try for the opportunity and honestly i didn't think i had a real chance because i'm not an engineer but where i landed was it, it's about leadership and at that point in my career i was a chief legal officer and general counsel of another national organization i had been deputy general counsel at a, at a fortune 100 and managing global litigation i had you know worked for mary Kay cosmetics and managed their 35 international subsidiaries from a labor and employment perspective i was a had been a trial lawyer at the u.s department of labor you know de uh, defending workers rights i thought i can bring all of that together um, my experience at inroads my experience at alpha kappa psi um, advocating for latina lawyers i thought i i'm gonna 
give it a shot and let's see where we land. And here I am. So you get the, you, you, get, <laughs> you get the offering, you get the offering and say, you know, congratulations, you know, we're, we're bringing you in as a CEO for a ship at the national level and you've did your research, but when you step into that seat, when you actually go to that, you know, the first convention, the first national convention, and you give your keynote, and you see this mass auditorium <laughs> full of young Latino aspiring to be engineers, you see the professionals in the sidelines, you see the people behind you, or you feel the people behind you rather. What was going through your mind, and did you, what? What did you say? Oh my God! Because engineers communicate a different way, and we feel a different way sometimes. And we are focused, and sometimes we don't see things the way a business person does. So, how did you manage to transition your law? experiences into this mass ocean of engineers. <laughs> That's a lot to unpack, Lázaro, but let me back up. So it was a tough decision, okay. right? Um, because to accept the CEO role at SHIP would mean I would be giving up my legal career, right? I, I don't practice law. I am not the lawyer for SHIP. Um, and so I had to make the decision that, okay, if I accept this position, I'm no longer going to be a practicing lawyer. And it's always, it could be a little challenging if I ever wanted to go back to that, right? Not impossible, but a little more challenging. And I also had another offer or another opportunity. And, but I really wanted um, the, the role at ship. And so it played out that way. Um, and it, it's been one of the best decisions I've ever made. I'm very humbled and honored to serve this organization um, as the CEO of SHIP. And I remember uh, my team members and others saying, oh my gosh, the SHIP convention is so amazing. It's so high energy, it's this, it's that. And I'm thinking, how great could it be? I've been to hundreds of like legal conferences and they're pretty awesome. Um, but I get to the, my first ship convention and I'm like, holy smoke, it really is like super high paced, high energy. It's amazing. I um, just seeing the, the waves and waves of all of these beautiful Hispanic students and professionals in their business suits. Um, with their resumes and they're all pumped up and they're excited and they're ready man it is awesome right. and it is the best experience um and i was told i was no doubt nervous nervous the first time um that i spoke you know to a you know a ballroom full of uh ship members at the opening but i was uh, it was nervous i was excited and i was totally pumped up after after the first one but it was really this past convention which was my third convention in 2019 in phoenix where i finally felt like okay things are really stable at the at the organization we're growing we're breaking records um where i really felt like people 
were accepting of me and started to, to know me and knew me better and that I knew the organization better because it's a complex organization um, and a lot of history. And so it was really, it wasn't really until last year that I felt like, okay, I, I, I feel good about what we're doing here. I feel good about what I'm doing here. Um, and yeah, I'm just really proud of what my team and I have been able to accomplish in three years. So how has, you know, how has SHIP influenced and helped you as well as to support your decision to continue being an advocate for Latinos in STEM particularly? Because you mentioned that you were a little hesitant at the beginning to take the position because that meant, you know, giving up your legal uh, career as an attorney. But how has SHIP given you that, ah, oh, moment, I made the right decision? At what point? I think every time that I talk with a member and they tell me how SHIP has changed their life, how SHIP has supported them, um, that is what inspires me to do what I do every day. It is not easy, let me tell you. <laughs> Um, I have ship on the brain 24 seven and it's been all about ship for the last three and a half years. And I'm okay with that. Um, I don't believe in work life balance. There is no such thing and it's counterbalanced. You know, you're always counterbalancing, counterbalancing, but it's for me, it's all been really about ship. And I felt that I needed to put in the hours and to do what I did and continue to do what I do because the ship mission is a very powerful one. And because when I talk with ship members and they, and they tell me their experiences and how ship has changed their lives and the, the lives of their family, it is very emotional and very powerful. Um, and, and no doubt ship really does change lives and we are empowering future leaders i say every ship member is a leader and um, or every ship member is a leader and that ship supports their leadership development and, and some of us need more help than others i'm evolving as a leader you know what got me to you know chief legal office status and the skills and the experiences um, there and the credentials there is not what's going to help me necessarily to be a successful CEO. Right. Um, so I have to pivot too. So I'm evolving as a leader um, with the support of the ship organization and my board and my team and the members and their feedback. Right. And right. <laughs> it's not always nice feedback. <laughs> I mean, you gotta, you gotta take the good with the bad. And, and you mentioned, Absolutely. you mentioned pivoting and you mentioned the hard times. We're at 2020 and we're in this unforeseen situation. You know, we started in March with the whole pandemic, everything closed down. A lot of events kind of shut down, but now we're getting close to the national convention and the national and NILA and, you know, our LDCs. Normally those conventions for ship, for the regional convention, for the regional meetings, for the NILA meetings, for the national convention take place in person. But you had to pivot 
to go virtual. How, how is that and how is your team adapting into this virtual transition fully? Um, it's been a swirl, let me tell you. Um, my team is working 24-7. Um, we cannot work any faster than we already are. Um, but I'd like to think that my team, um, like SHIP members, very resilient, very resourceful, creative, innovative. Um, you know, four of the seven regional conferences, four of the seven RLDCs had to be canceled. So within, actually in three weeks, less than a month, my team was able to put together a virtual career fair to um, really make up for the four RLDCs that were canceled. And then um, we had to make the decision to go virtual for NILA, which is our leadership conference, and then ultimately made the decision uh, to go virtual for our convention. And, and really it was because the convention in Denver canceled our contract because of COVID. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the team really got on it and um, we're still on it. And we had a successful virtual career conference or career fair. And then NILA, which was what, a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. um, highly successful too. Um, normally when we have in-person, we are able to certify you know, a hundred plus chapter leaders at most less than 200 people are able to attend in person. Virtually we had over 900 people mm-hmm. and we were able to certify hundreds and hundreds of chapter leaders. That's a game changer. And so now um, this, this entire time um, we have been planning now for a virtual convention we had because when you're planning for a convention of 10,000 people in person you have to start planning well in advance yeah. Yeah. and so we had made all these plans and all these things were in place for an in-person experience we had to bring that to a screeching halt and start all over again for virtual and it's very complicated it's not like what we're doing here. Oh, you know, whip together, you know, a Zoom account and, you know, a few people call in in order to host a convention, which a ship convention is actually five conferences in one and to actually host tens of thousands, you know, tens of thousands of people, you know, here almost 10,000 people is what we're expecting. Um, it's not just, hey, let's, go get a bunch of Zoom accounts. You have to go and source um, a technology platform for that. And those technology platforms are very expensive. And then once you have that, you actually have to um, retain a production team to build around it, right? To build everything out. All the, you know, the career fair and the hospitality and the networking and the um, interview all of it there's all of these components very complex it's actually i think more complex and more complicated than doing doing a convention in person yeah. and it's it's not and it's expensive right. right it is not for free a lot of people think that hey it's virtual it should be free it it it, it cannot be free because it is not free right. exactly. <laughs> um, and, but and, but we have to also get very creative 
with how are we going to continue to bring value to our members and our partners um, because we're not expecting the same type of revenue and the ship convention is the largest revenue generator for the organization and now it's an entirely different experience that most people um, were expecting and would like and want Um, we have to make up for the significant loss in revenue because we're now virtual right and you know i'm gonna ask a question about the ipcs for different corporations have any of those corporations kind of decided to pull back because of the pandemic and the going virtual situation which further hinders ship at a national level and you know can you kind of talk about that or is that something we um, I, I talk about it super high level mm-hmm. you know um, COVID has impacted everyone right impacted every business yeah. um, we think about the airline industry yeah. They got hit really, really hard. And so we do have some ind- industry partners that as much as they want to come back, they can't. Right. And we understand them. Right. And we understand that. Um, and then there is the ever-shrinking budget for some of these companies. Yeah. Um, they've had to lay people off. They've had to um, make massive budget adjustments. and. Unfortunately, that impacts their level of um, support. Sponsorship, yeah. What's the most surprising aspect at this point for you of being the CEO of SHIP? Personally, or? <laughs> I, I want to hear both. I want to hear both. Yeah. Personally, and as the uh, leader of, of ship at the, uh, you know, as, as a uh, business type. Gosh, a lot of different insights that I could share with you. Okay. Um, one, I didn't realize how competitive this space was. Um, member, membership associations and um, professional societies and especially in STEM, there's a lot of organizations out there competing for the same dollars mm-hmm. and it's competitive and it's tough right yeah yeah right there's that um you know i have nonprofit experience but this is my first member association my first professional society and you know, SHIP is almost at 14,000 members and members, each member has their own personal experience and their own opinion and not hesitant to necessarily express that opinion and very loudly on social media. Um, So getting beat up for one thing or another on social media, you know, that's been tough, Um, especially in those instances where you know, perhaps the person didn't have all the information or all the facts, Mm -hmm. right? Um, There's that. Um, And then I mentioned this in an article for Hispanic executive. You know, throughout my career, when I've spoken with Hispanic executive or other periodicals or other types of interviews, and I've been asked, 
You know, have you ever been discriminated against? Have you ever been harassed? And yeah, throughout my legal career, I've, I've been harassed and, and I can deal with that. Um, I never felt discriminated against as a lawyer. But now that I'm a CEO, um, I, I bump up against situations where I feel like certain individuals want to put me in my place because I'm a woman. Interesting. And that is, uh, it's really challenging for me. Yeah. You know, when, when someone will say, oh, you know, you need to smile more or you need to be more nurturing or um, you're trying to flex your muscles. Hmm. Things like that, I don't think would be said to a male CEO. Hmm. I see. Okay. Or when grown people talk behind my back and triangulate versus actually addressing the situation or the issue with me directly. And that, that's um, disconcerting for me and right. trying to navigate that. And so I have to think about my shiftinas, mm -hmm. right? Because I'm thinking, man, I, I have the title of CEO. I'm, you know, I'm ex old. I'm at this part in my career and I'm having to deal with this. Mm -hmm. How is the younger generation of females dealing with the same thing that I'm dealing with if it's at this level? How can I help them cope with it? Not only that, um, how do I bring allies and advocates of the male uh, into the play to support us and to continue moving forward and, you know, rising together and lifting each other up at the same time? That is a very difficult situation. And I can see that as the CEO, there's a heavy weight and heavy burden, not only because you're the CEO, but because you're the CEO at the national level, because you're the CEO of an organization that a lot of Latinos in the STEM field know, recognize. And as you said, there's different ideas and different opinions from each member, let alone members from California, Arizona, Texas, all the 50 states. We all come from different backgrounds, even though we're Latinos and we're all bunched up in the same connotation per se. We all belong to SHIP, Society of Hispanic Professional Engineers, for one reason or another. But we all identify with SHIP. And at the same time, we all look up to the leader, which is you in this case. So all that weight, all those opinions carry a heavy, heavy burden to you. And you are also looked up as a mentor, a mentor for the professional as myself, a mentor for the young college student that had just found out that there's ship and they're serving free pizza at their meeting. <laughs> and the young high school student that mm -hmm. is at the, University, the high school of the local barrio community 
and they don't know what it is like to have an individual family member be in a professional suit in in company and they find out about the ship junior chapter and they think it's a club but then all of a sudden their eyes are open that oh my god this is a whole ocean of an organization that i can tap into and you know linked into the ceo of ship raquel tamis what you know how does that make you feel to be a mentor of such great capacity to all those individuals male and female across the nation well i take it very seriously yeah. and um and it's i feel it's my responsibility and i um and it's it's a heavy weight one that i gladly carry um which is why i think about ship 24/7 because i have a sense of urgency for ship and ship members and hispanics if you think about our critical mass numbers but the fact that we're not at the highest levels in the centers of power and there's a huge disparity there and i i think as an ethnic group as a racial group we're amazing and we have so much to offer and we have done so much for this country mm -hmm. that is correct and i always when given the opportunity i i remind ship members that we come from a long line a long lineage of warriors and creators and we were some of the first engineers and scientists and astronomers mm -hmm. think about the incas and the mayans and the aztecs mm -hmm. that's our heritage right exactly and that it's important for us to know our history right. and to know the facts right for we should sure. become effective communicators and advocators and influencers and that we have to back each other up what was really surprising to me, um, you know, lately with, you know, some things that people, you know, ship members weren't happy about that, you know, certain folks turned inward and were, you know, highly uber critical, very publicly, not necessarily with all the facts. And when I offered, in many instances to, to, to talk to that person and share facts. They did not take me up on that or they went and talked behind my back or <laughs> went to tattle on me. Um, I, I found that interesting, but more interesting than that was why not harness that energy and direct it where it needs to be directed? Why would you cannibalize your own organization the organization that you claim that you love and that supported you and continues to support you why not turn to those um, companies and organizations that do not support ship or do not support ship at the same level as other mm -hmm. racial organizations True. True. Right? i mean i in no way am i trying to discourage discourse public discourse not at all, but I think it's more responsible if one claims to be a leader or wants to be a leader to be better informed and to get informed before pontificating publicly and criticizing an organization 
without having all the facts, or at least the relevant facts, right? Yes, that makes so, sense. Um, to get back to being a mentor, I have been asked, you know, by individuals, and I love it when someone calls me and contacts me about, will you be my mentor? And I wish I had the bandwidth to be a mentor to individuals, but the way um, I have found that I can best do it um, more broadly is through my CEO corners and by the things that I post and I'm trying to be informative. Um, through my CEO corners and my post, um, I, I'd like to think that um, by what I'm doing and how I'm doing it and going about it, or what I'm not doing, um, because sometimes that matters too, or what I'm not saying, because that's important sometimes, is that I'm being a role model for people. Um, but when somebody does reach out to me, in fact, I had a, a, a lawyer reach out to me because he remembered me when I sat on a, um, on a panel at the Hispanic National Bar Association conference. And he reached out to me and he wanted me to help him navigate a, a career issue that he was dealing with. And I took the time to do that because he took the time to reach out to me. And I think that it's important to make the time to do those kinds of things um, because individuals have done that for me. I have a mentor slash career sponsor friend who has aspirations for me that I don't even have for myself. How amazing is that? I mean, I think everybody needs to be that for someone. Right. Have, you know, to have that one mentee that you have aspirations for that maybe that mentee doesn't even have for themselves that powerful and some i have that and i'm very fortunate and grateful um and i want to be that for someone and my thing right now is i want as many latinas in ceo roles as possible and i'm going to back up my latinas um in my circle and outside of my circle um, when recruiters call and they're looking for someone, I have very vast networks in the legal space, in the STEM space, in the diversity and inclusion space. I'm going to be um, putting forth the Latinas that I know, the women of color that I know, because we need more women in roles of leadership. That's awesome. Great. Uh, you are the CEO of SHIP National at the national level. You've yes. been in, you know, you've been and you've been able to transform and function in very difficult situations during this pandemic. You have also focused on law, but have been successful leading the Latino STEM advocating organization known as SHIP. You are a successful individual at this point. What is next for you, Raquel Tamis? Are you going to run out and finish your career as the CEO? Obviously, we don't know, but what are your plans? I'm going to run for politics. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's a possibility. It's a possibility. I never thought about it because I was like, oh, I have too many skeletons in my closet. And I thought, you know what? These days, everybody has skeletons in their exactly. closet. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, for me, it's having that sense of urgency, right? And I, I think that there's still a lot that we need to do at SHIP. Um, you know, we've certainly taken ship to a whole nother level, um, but, and we've made some inroads, but there's more, more, more we can do. 
Um, so I, I hope the board keeps me around a little longer. Okay. But it, it, there are other opportunities to um, have an impact on other tribes or specific tribes like Latinas, right? Um, I want to try and do that. And I would consider politics. I, I <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. All kidding aside, you would be a good, uh, good candidate because we have to go back to empathy. You have that. We have to go back to caring for the individuals. We have to go back to the individual. And in this case, you looking inside for those core values and you live by your core values, which is something that I believe your father and mother instilled in you very heavily. And the fact that you told us the story about your dad saying that you disappointed him made a big impact. That means that you now have in your mind, okay, people are looking at me, whatever I do, whatever I say, how can I go ahead and have people actually respect me and look up to me and look forward. And so you you would be a good candidate. That's awesome. So now this, this last five questions are the rapid fire questions. Last five questions. This is rapid fire. So good leaders always create good leaders. Do you have any individuals you actually look up to and who are your mentors? My father. Your father. My first and foremost mentor. Wisest man I know, wisest person I know. Um, very, very clever. Okay. He's my number one mentor. Awesome. Congratulations to your dad. He did a great job. You look up to him. 98 years young. <laughs> awesome. Uh, it's, still, it's still growing. <laughs> That's great. That's, That's great. Right. Um, if, what do you believe your superpower to be? And if you don't have a superpower uh, right now that you can think of, which superpower from any superhero would you select and why? Integrity. Integrity. That's awesome. And awesome. with that, it's what my geometry teacher in the 10th grade used to tell tell us sister Therese used to say say what you mean and mean what you say awesome, awesome. say what you mean and mean what you say and follow through with that that's great mm -hmm. uh, any particular book movie or podcast that you believe has made an impact in your life and you wish more people actually would take advantage of it read um, I read multiple books at the same, not all at the same time, but I juggle through different books um, in every format, hard book, electronic book, audio, you know, audio books. I, I think it just opens up a person's world and aperture and perspective. Uh, I love Blinkist is an app that gives you little snapshots of all the sort of latest and greatest books out there. And then if it really resonates with you, then you can go and, and, and buy the book. Absolutely love that. Um, I love my different apps for meditation. Okay. You know, I'm trained in trans uh, transcendental meditation. Um, I, I study Buddhism and go to Buddhist temple. I was raised Catholic. I'm glad that I was raised Catholic, but I've sort of expanded um, what I think of religion and and I'm, it's more of a philosophy for me. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I think reading, meditating, um, I still take working out very seriously. I still lift heavy weights. Um, even though I have my sort of, you know, 
certification um, in personal training. I'm certified in Pilates for mat and equipment. I was on the powerlifting team at UT. I mentioned that before. So it's really important to me, my health and my physical strength and flexibility. So working out, meditating, reading. Okay, working out, meditating, and reading. Uh, we all have different definitions of success at different stages in our life. At this point, what is your definition of success? I don't want to be hokey about it, right? Um, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I think it's being challenged at at work and in my career in a good way and that um, that one be passionate about what they're doing Mm -hmm. so that you know you get up in the morning and you're excited um, about your day your work day but it's also important to be respected and acknowledged for what you're doing. Right. right. I think that's success. Yeah. So once you are able to get that respect and acknowledgement from your peers and from the people that you work around, that is success in itself. Uh, that's that's that, Yeah. And that you're passionate about what you're doing and that you're challenged in a good way, that there is um, career satisfaction mm-hmm. right. there. And, what, and whatever you're doing. I mean, it could be you're a janitor, but if you're happy doing that, yeah, absolutely, it's awesome. absolutely, yes, yes, absolutely, exactly. whatever, whatever is in front of you, right? Yeah, yeah. With this last question, this last question, I really enjoy asking this last question out of every guest. I want you to envision yourself, and I want you to go back to that young lady in the Catholic school, and you know she's riding the bus, and she gets off from the bus and walks home. And she sees the chickens in her backyard. And the goat. And the goat. And the goat. (laughs) And if you could go back in time and, you know, get get to greet that young girl as she's stepping off the bus coming back from school, what would you actually say to that young lady? Three pieces of advice if you had about two or three minutes to share with her that would make her successful. Wow. Um, Honestly, it's the two things that my father has said to me, which is why I'm so grateful to have the dad that I have. Um, And I would wish this for, for every person, for every young girl, really, um, and boy. But, you know, growing up, even though we didn't have much, my dad always said, try not to worry about money, we'll figure it out. Because he didn't want the lack of money to preclude me from going to school. And so, you know, kind of having that, that assurance, right, that we would figure it out. But more importantly, I think, once my dad saw that I went off to law school and I did well in law school, you know, when I was in high school and university, 
every conversation ended with, don't worry about money. I think my dad wanted me to focus on school. And then after law school, he used to say, and he still does. So when we have our conversations on Sundays, he always ends the conversation, Raquel, follow your dreams. So don't worry about money and follow your dreams. That's wonderful. That's, uh, you know, wonderful advice for everybody, young boy, young girl to follow. Right. Don't worry about money if you're in high school and trying to figure out how to pay for college or if you're a young professional and you're trying to put, you know, put your, your down payment for a house or whatever it is, don't worry about money. Just focus on following your dreams and the passion and drive through with that. People will see and acknowledge you for who you are and you will become that much powerful. I want to acknowledge Raquel Tames for her leadership as the CEO, overcoming the obstacles of, you know, different situations within the organization, which proves that we're all human and that we all have our opinions. But she has been steadfast in her position as leader, moving this organization at the national level forward one step at a time. I want to acknowledge you for being a human and for understanding and being empathetic to all that reach out to you. With that, I want to thank the audience. Thank you for listening to another wonderful episode of Success Innovation. I hope that this episode has been enlightening and that you learned. And if it has served the purpose, please share and like and continue the movement. This has been Lazaro Herrera for Success Innovation. Thank you so much. I'll see you next time. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for finishing another wonderful episode of Success Innovation. Today, we learned about Raquel Tamis. We get to know her at a much more personal level. I personally was mesmerized with her story about her dad and her mom and how this dynamic of yin and yang play a very important role on who she is. The success and empowerment of Latinos is high on her list. It is important to note the hard decision Raquel had to make when shifting from being an attorney practicing law to actually entering SHIP, a nonprofit organization, to support this organization. Thank you, Raquel Tames, for all you do. This has been Lazaro Herrera for Success Innovation. I'll see you next time. Bye bye.